By the time you come to Ephesians 3, and if you have your Bibles, please turn there. It'll be page 674 if you picked up one of the Bibles in the back. By the time you come to this, Paul spent a couple chapters uh, talking about what it means to be blessed in Christ Jesus. And this is a little bit more complicated of a chapter, but I've asked uh, Donna Poor to come share with us uh, Ephesians 3. So the words will be up on the screen. I hope you've got a Bible open as well in front of you. Donna, come uh, share with us Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of I'm sorry, mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. I appreciate that. Have you ever begun an idea? So you start sharing an idea and immediately something else comes to mind. You get to kind of digress for a moment and then you come back to that after you know, kind of gain your train of thought. That happens in scripture at times. They're, they're inspired words, but when you have a digression like that, so a, an author will start to say something and then he will kind of go out and cover another topic. When you, when you have that, it reminds us that as all, although Scripture certainly is, is God-breathed, it also is written by humans. So a human author named Paul wrote to a, a particular group of people in, in Ephesus, and, and he's writing a letter to them, and he's thinking about things, and he's writing them, and, and then something else comes to mind. And so we kind of have a detour here, a divine digression, if you will, a little detour that I want us to look at this morning. Because, and this is what I'm talking about. If you have your, your scripture in front of you, look at verse one. It says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner. And then in most English translations, there is a dash. And like, we're, we're waiting for the verb, right? All the grammarians are waiting for the verb to complete the thought because we have for this reason and we're saying, okay, you do what? And for what reason? And we're waiting for him to fill in the content of what he, what he wants to do. But then he moves on and really takes a digression from 2 to 13. We actually find the verb and the completed thought in verse 14, which we'll look at next week. So why take the digression? Why take the detour here? Something, like I mean, Paul's just riding along and something makes him just screech the brakes to a halt. Call a time out and say, I want to talk about this for a moment. This is what I think what's going on here. So Paul has just written about like Jesus' authority and power. 
and how that even transfers to those that are Christians? And then what are the first, re- first words he writes? For this reason, I, Paul, am a prisoner. Wait a minute. You're talking about the authority of God? And you're a prisoner. You're talking about the glories of salvation? Yeah, and you're in jail. So he begins to ask maybe some questions. I mean, what good is it if you're made alive and saved by grace? If you're in prison? I think this is important because Paul knew even as he was writing, there would be those that would read that, that immediately they're going to go to their friend who's suffering. And when we are suffering, do, you, do we not know this? I mean, when we are suffering, it affects us. And, and in a unique way, when we see another person suffering, it gets to us. We begin to ask questions. We begin to ask questions like, why would God let someone suffer like that? Maybe that's the question of the church at Ephesus. Like, why? Why does God let Paul be in prison of all people? Maybe you've asked the question, I mean, what, what could God ever want from this? What good could ever come out of this? Is there any sort of bigger picture that helps me understand this unique kind of form of suffering? Is there any picture, like bigger picture, that will help me understand all of what God is doing here? And by the way, if you've, just, if you've ever asked those kinds of questions, sometimes I feel like Christians think those are rare questions, like, Shame on the person that ever asked this, but that's actually not the case. If you've ever asked the question, like, what is God doing? I really don't know how God could have something good in mind in this. Then actually you're you're asking questions that are very familiar to Christians for 2,000 years. And Paul's going to take our hand through this divine digression and say, I am in prison unless you think that we got major problems here. I want to share with you some things. Notice how he identifies himself. Maybe kind of the first thing we can hang on here is that God displays his grace as he reveals a mystery. God displays his grace as he reveals a mystery. Paul says that God gave him a stewardship, that that stewardship, so Paul sees himself as a manager And he's a manager, he's a steward of God's grace. He doesn't own it, he's a steward of it. And Paul says in this stewardship, I've been a steward of grace. And the particular grace that Paul had was he had a mystery that he could reveal. So verse 3, you read the word mystery. Verse 4, mystery. Verse 6, mystery. You see, sometimes the, the usage of biblical words are different than the way we use them in our day and time. So mystery is the right word to be translated. But we think of mystery like if I get enough clues, so imagine we're playing the game Clue, if I get enough of the clues, then I can put it together and make an educated guess. Or if I had the brain power of Sherlock, then I could put it all together and I would know exactly how all this worked and I would be able to to figure out the mystery. Yeah, the the Bible uses the word mystery a little bit differently. A mystery in the Bible is not one of those things that given enough information and enough brain power you could put together. Actually, in the Bible, a mystery is something that you never figure out on your own. You'd never come to that conclusion. You'd never put all those pieces together. 
That's why in the Bible, like, the golden rule is not a mystery. That makes sense to us. That makes sense to lots of cultures. To do unto others as you would have them do to you. That's not a mystery. It's a good teaching. It's not a mystery. It's not a mystery. The Ten Commandments are, are never called a mystery. We shouldn't steal. We shouldn't covet. We shouldn't commit adultery. We shouldn't bear false witness. As important as the teaching that is, that, that's not a mystery. But when it comes, hear this, when it comes to God, the Son, taking on human flesh and coming to this earth as a human being and living the life we should have lived, but, but we can't, meaning the perfect life, and dying a death in our place for our sin, and rising again with all powerful power and, and justifying us and then reigning forever. Like none of us are ever going to get there on our own. We have to have someone reveal that to us, make, make that known to us. And that is exactly what Paul realizes he has the privilege of doing, making known the mystery of God. Verse 3 says he makes it known. He reveals it in verse 3. And verse 4, he says this is insight. Verse 5, he makes it known. Verse 5, he reveals it. Do we get the message? He's not the originator. Paul's not the creator of the Christian religion, but he is the revealer by the Holy Spirit of this mystery. He makes it public. He makes it public, and what goes public is a a couple things. One, and we really pick up on it in verse 6, one is that the Jews and the Gentiles have come together to form one new people of God. You know, we've got to kind of take a step back and, and think through because I can go weeks without thinking of myself in distinction to a Jew. Like, well, we all Gentiles, and then there's... I I don't even think in those distinctions most of the time. But when you enter kind of the first century into the Christian church that was formed out of uh, Jewish roots, you would be thinking of that. The first 39 books of your Bible would would tell you, the only Bible that you would have as as a New Covenant Christian would tell you that that this reconciliation of Jew and Gentile coming together to make something new is a huge deal. But, but do you have verse 6 in front of you? It says, this mystery is that both Jews and Gentiles are, are fellow heirs. So what is the content of the mystery that Paul gets to make known? What is it that we are heirs? And this really speaks to the future. And you become an heir not because of anything you do or earn, but because of of who decides to make you a special relation and, and give you an inheritance. And that is exactly, exactly what Paul is saying. You have the, the new heavens and the new earth are your inheritance. You didn't work and you didn't earn it. But your fellow heirs together. You have a future. I have a future. And we are also, in verse 6, members of the same body. So what Paul thinks is so important is, and that we realize is we are interconnected. As much as kind of we have our, our own time with the Lord in worship, we, we do it together. We're interconnected. We, we need a body. We need a family. I look at the church directory that we passed out, and this is edition number seven, right? And so as I look at edition number seven of Snapshot and I see picture after picture, what I realize is we are interconnected. What holds us together is not all our, our same ethnicity and race. It's not all our, our background or our denominational background or not our socioeconomic standing. What holds us together is Jesus Christ has brought us together. We're interconnected. 
in the same body. And we're partners. We're partakers. But, but the real word, idea is like we're partners in the promise. So you don't play like the, the minor role. You play a vital role in, in being a partner. People who are partners have responsibilities and they have some, some uh, stakes, some skin in the game. And, and we have these promises through the gospel. Through this announcement, the gospel, the announcement that God has come in this world, in Jesus Christ, to save it. I wonder if we just take a step back for a moment and absorb what it means that the mystery has been made known and we've been brought into God's family. Do we fully appreciate the dimensions of that? Oh, the deep, deep love all I need and trust. It's the deep, deep love of Jesus. Do we appreciate that? See, I wonder if the person who's like the park ranger at the Grand Canyon, I don't know whether it's a he or she, but I wonder if they go out every day to their job site. I wonder if they're amazed every day. Or do I wonder at times, do they get bored by that? They've seen it so many times. I wonder the person that has like that ocean view out their bedroom of the, the Atlantic Ocean and they get to wake up and see it every single morning. And all of its beauty, all the sunrises and all the sunsets, they, they get to have that as their vantage point. I wonder if it ever gets, I wonder if it gets old. I wonder if they get bored. I wonder the, the tour guide that explains what happened with the USS Arizona. I wonder if that person ever just kind of, it's old hat, I've done this a a bazillion times. I wonder if it strikes them every single time. So the question I have at church today, I wonder if God's grace ever gets boring to us. We've sung about it. We've heard so many Bible stories that kind of our spiritual hearts have been so calloused. We just go through emotions. I wonder if we checked your spiritual pulse, if you checked mine. I wonder if it would be where, where it is now if we measured that even against six months ago. I wonder if there's a deeper love for the Lord. You probably know more about God's love now than you did then. I wonder if we backed it up a year. I wonder if we backed it up a decade. I wonder if we went to the hour you first believed. Like the first time, like the scales come off and you see it. You see it clearly. I wonder, do you feel that? Do you own that? Do you have those affections? Do you have those desires? And you say, the deep, deep love of Jesus. That is all I need. That is all I trust. Or has it become something that you're just so accustomed to? You're actually more excited that someone might possibly have sent you a a message on Snapchat or some clown you don't know from 20 years ago has posted something that you could care less about on social media. Could it be those things trigger in our hearts a more expectant, like, oh, I wonder what's going on there. I wonder what's going on there. I think it's worth checking our hearts. Because what, what is this mystery that is being revealed? Fellow heir, member of the same body, partaker of the promise. 
Like, there is no deeper joy than that, even though I fiddle with a, a thousand things that bring lesser joys. There is no truer joy than that. There is nothing that can fuel my desire to do what Jesus says, to obey what Jesus said, just because he said it. There's nothing that fuels that. Guilt doesn't fuel that. Manipulation doesn't fuel that. But a love for Jesus and a fresh glimpse of what he took from me on the cross fuels that like nothing else. God displays his grace as he reveals this mystery. And Paul says, I get to be a steward of it. But as you read in verse 7, it it goes a little bit to a different place. Actually, not only does God display his grace as he reveals the mystery, but God displays his grace as we share the mystery. So Paul could say, I'm not only a steward of it, but I'm also a minister of God's grace in verse 7. A minister or a servant or another word for it would be a deacon. I'm a servant of God's grace. I get to do things for God's grace. It seemed to create in Paul this humility. As I read in verse, verse 8, he calls himself the very least of all the saints. And we go like, oh my goodness, I mean, there are churches named, you know, the church of St. Paul, and there's a city named St. Paul. And so is St. Paul this and St. Paul that? And he says, yeah, I'm the least of all the saints. How could he say that? I think it's because Paul knew his own heart better than he knew anybody else's. And that's exactly how I say it. That's why I can say I'm the very least of all the saints because I know my own heart. I know how I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God that I confess right now I love. I need the Lord to take my heart and seal it. Otherwise, I will not make it through this earthly life. Paul, could, Paul said, being a servant of this doesn't give me arrogance. It gives me humility. It's only by his grace and by a gift of God's grace that I get to do this. So here the privilege, notice it's a little bit different. It's not just knowing the mystery but it's sharing the mystery. Not just knowing God's grace, but sharing God's grace. Not just knowing the gospel, but sharing the gospel. Verse 8, he says, I get to preach to the Gentiles. And we hear preach and we think kind of exactly what I'm doing here. And actually the word would be used very differently. It would be like the town crier who would herald out what what the, the news of the day was, the most important thing to listen to. So imagine a person on the street, you know, two millennia ago, who's crying out, this is what's important. And that is exactly what Paul says. I get to do that. I get to call people's attention to what is the most important. I get to preach. Not just those that were the spiritual insiders, but to the outsiders as well. I get to make sure everyone knows. He says in verse 9, I get to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of God. I can only imagine that somewhere on this earth right now, someone's creating something and they're pretty proud of it. They're making something new. And, and, and we have creative types in our congregation. And you know what it means to create something. And what you want is you want it to come to light. In good time, you want it to come to light so everybody can see it. Or as many people as, as possible can see this and can appreciate it. Paul wants to bring to light so that people don't have to live in darkness. He wants to be a part of making it known to everybody. Can we look at verse 10 carefully? Because I I think this verse could be easily confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Paul is making everything known so that, in verse 10, so that, this was God's plan, which was hidden, so that through the church, hear this, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. 
What is that saying? So you've got rulers and authorities in heavenly places. That's the angels and the demons. That's the angelic and demonic realms. Those are the things we don't see by our sight, but we know we're there by faith. And Paul says, through the church, I'm going to put, God says, I'm, I'm going to put my, my manifold, like the coat of many colors, the manifold wisdom that I have on display. It's like the, the glass bowl that isn't really there to draw attention to the, the glass. It's there to draw attention to what's inside. And Paul says the church is like that. It's showing that God is all wise. And it's showing it not just to, like, to the area, but it's showing it to the spiritual forces that we don't see, the angels and the demons that we don't see. If God is saying, this, this is my wisdom. This shows that I am I'm omnicompetent. I'm omniscient. God has made a new group. And he's gathering this new group together. It's called the church. See, sometimes we think, you know what would show that God is really wise? If a high-flying celebrity would, would somehow give some nod, like, I give God my props, and then they could write a book and see, oh, we're, we're on the winning team. Because so-and-so says that he's kind of likes God a little bit. And God doesn't need that. When God wants to show how wise he is, it's gatherings like ours at 8.30 and 11 o'clock. And we could go down the road and we would see another gathering. We'd see another one. We'd go all over the world and there would be these little gatherings which may not seem much. I mean, we, we make it say, ah, do I feel like going to church or not? And, and we don't even realize that angelic forces are watching God's wisdom on display. And we may or may not be engaged a particular day particular morning. What an amazing thing. The church isn't about like a, a shared initiative to make the world a better place and we'll show how powerful we are in that. It's much more. I, I think of the church at Ephesus, I would think likely Paul's writing someone that's, someone in that church is a slave if the proportions and, and the ratio, someone's a slave, probably multiple people. And likely there's there's some lady, some man who's come and their spouse doesn't come because they're a pagan worshiper. And likely there are singles and there are couples and there's young and there's old and, and there they're gathered and likely it, it wouldn't even fill up any one section of our, our gathering here to, today. It'd be more like a, a small room or a small house where people are gathered together. That's probably who he's writing to. And he says, through that gathering, the manifold wisdom of God is put on display. Something powerful happens as groups meet together in covenant relationship with God and in covenant relationship with each other. Our church covenant, I was thinking about this when I was thinking, what an amazing plan God has. So our church covenant says a, a, a couple things. I'll, I'll just read some of that. So together we will spur one another on to love and good deeds. And when we do that, God says, this is my wisdom. We will meet with one another consistently, pray for one another regularly, serve one another selflessly. And when we do that, look how wise God is. We will endeavor to bring up those under our care in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We will share each other's joys and bear each other's burdens. We will edify one another with our speech, encourage one another with our example. We will use restraint in activities to avoid harming another's faith. And when we do that, God is seen to be wise. We will humbly and gently confront one another and receive correction from one another. 
we will give cheerfully and generously to the support of the church, the relief of the poor, the, the spread of the gospel through all nations. We will hold fast the hope we profess. We will participate regularly in communion as we remember the past work of Christ on the cross, the present work of Christ at the Father's right hand, and the future work of Christ when he returns for his bride. And all that seems, those aren't just mere words to repeat. This is God doing what only God could do, saying, look how wise I am. So we join our hearts together every Sunday. God's wisdom's on display. As we care for each other. As we use our gifts, embracing a calling to serve each other. God's wisdom's on display. As we forgive each other after having been wronged. Look how wise God is. As we speak the truth to each other, always in love. And experience community together shows, look how wise God is. As we're patient with each other, as we show humility, as we push each other toward godliness and away from our own sin, we're saying, isn't God wise? As we, as we don't just look to our own decision, yeah, I'm following Jesus. As we look and say, what about everybody else in the room? Are they following Jesus as well? And what can I do to help them follow Jesus as well? We're saying, isn't God wise? We're sharing the mystery. Paul's just about ready to come back to this digression, kind of this detour where he's coming back to his train of thought, but he closes it out because I think, once again, he's thinking of that church then in Ephesus and they're worried about him being in prison and they're wondering, how does the gospel of authority work when some, someone's in prison? And Paul says, I just want you to know, he says in verse uh, 12, I have boldness and I have access with confidence. I have boldness, not timidity, because I know God is at work. Yeah, boldness and prison normally don't go together, but they do with Paul. Paul says, I have access. Yeah, when you're chained to something, it doesn't seem like you got a lot of access to much of anything. But Paul says, I've got access. Why? Because I can talk to my Heavenly Father, and God will hear me, and God will work things out because He loves His Son, Jesus Christ. I have confidence. I'm not doubting. As Paul would say, they can lock me up. I'm not the loser in any game here. He ends with the simple request to the Ephesian believers. He says, don't lose heart. Paul says, when you stack up being a prisoner for the Lord with the opportunity to be a steward of his grace, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. That's fine. A prisoner stacked up with being a servant of God's grace, I'll, I'll do that. So, so you don't lose heart. And I would say to our church family today, to Ogletown, let, let's not lose heart. Let's not lose heart when we're insulted. Let's not lose heart when we're, we're pressured to, to cave on our faith or someone gives us a dirty look or, or treats us kind of less because we name Jesus Christ. Let's not lose heart. Let's not lose heart when we suffer or when we do, know those that are suffering as well. Let's, let's minister in mercy and compassion, but let's not lose heart. Let's not lose heart when our family blows up. When we struggle to kind of put the pieces back together, let's not lose heart. Because what we know is there is a mystery that's being revealed and we have the privilege of being the sharers of that mystery. When that mystery goes public, look how wise God is. It's put on display through the church. Can I ask you to bow your head? Can I ask you to do what I mentioned earlier and take your spiritual pulse? I think one of the, the definitive things that comes out of 
a heart that's stirred for the Lord is, is really gratitude. I love this song we're going to close with because it repeats, Jesus, thank you. Jesus, thank you. So if your heart's been stirred with gratitude today, stirred with more affection to the Lord, stirred for fresh obedience, stirred for deeper trust, this is a perfect way to respond. Lord, thank you for this mystery that we're not in the dark about. I'm grateful that I don't have some secret code word or some secret word of knowledge that only about 10% in the room is going to get. You just put it on display publicly. Your son went to a very public cross and then your apostles gave a very public message. And here we are 2,000 years later giving that same public message about that same man on the cross and his empty tomb. Make this mystery come alive to us this week. I pray that we would read our Bibles more, that we would share Christ more, that we would be more obedient and quicker to obey, that we'd be more humble, that we would be produce a, a thousand good fruits in us because of our lingering on the cross and this mystery that's gone public. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.